This podcast was recorded on July 13th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman. Here's my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, as we've been doing for the last uh, 10 or 15 uh, podcasts or so, we're also putting this on YouTube. Uh, so you can follow us on our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital, all one word. Uh, and so you can see our very special guest today, Mr. Paul Christopher. Welcome to The Sherman Show, Paul. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, Sam, great to be here with you. Great. So um, if those of you who don't know Paul Christopher, he's the head of global market strategy for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, it's a subsidiary of Wells Fargo uh, where he composed manager research, alternative investment strategy teams, and also they provide industry-leading investment research and strategy to better help their clients achieve their financial goals. So uh, welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. So I think what's on top of mind today is as we sit here uh, we got a new inflation print uh, today from the CPI. Uh, once again, kind of a surprise to the upside on the month-over-month -month numbers. I've stopped looking at year-over-year -year because of the base effects and the like, and uh, looking at the month-over-month. -month. And uh, the headline is is kind of disconcerting when you look at it. You see some spikes there. If you dig underneath the hood, uh, you see a little bit of different detail. But I want to not bias your take here. But what are you thinking about the inflation front, and what do you read from today's print? So the markets have generally been looking through these inflation reports. The ones that we got from, say, February through May, that's where the base effect was the most prominent because, of course, prices a year ago, February to May, were actually falling. Now that, we've got, now that we're back to a comparison of, of flat to rising prices versus rising prices, base effect isn't so great. So what we're really seeing here is some stickiness in inflation. But again, we think markets will continue to look through these inflation prints. They may be high for the current moment, but if you think about it, inflation is really gonna go with growth. And if we're at peak growth, then you have to figure we're at peak inflation. Now, we don't think that the Fed is giving inflation enough due when they say inflation is transitory. That suggests that inflation is gonna go back to the 1.8% of the last decade. We don't think that's going to happen. But we do think you'll get inflation between two and two and a half percent. And we don't think that the market is worried about the Fed, uh, let's say, letting inflation go too far. That's why the, the Treasury curve has flattened the way it has. So the bottom line here is, number one, as growth slows, inflation should slow with it. Number two, it's probably not going back down to one and a half again, one and a half percent a year. But it's probably not going up to the 70s levels of five, four, five, six percent either. It's not going to derail the market. And point number three, therefore, we still like stocks better than bonds here. We think rates will kind of come back from here, even if they're not going to skyrocket. It's really a great market still for stock investors. So you mentioned peak growth, and I, I know that's been the narrative everywhere that I, I read everything coming out of the streets, peak growth. 
Um, earnings growth has has peaked as well. You talk about peak inflation. However, um, you know it doesn't mean that we're going to fall off a cliff in the second half, right? Uh, so as you right. look at the second half and you think about 2022, um, how are you guys forecasting and thinking about that? Where do we go? What does a normalization look like of growth rates and inflation? Do we go back to trend levels that we saw post global financial crisis, or are you guys thinking that there is some kind of extra juice coming out of this recovery? There is some extra juice on the earnings side. We think earnings on the S&P 500 this year will top $200 uh, and next year 220. So yeah, the growth rate's going to slow, obviously, as the economy slows, but those are still pretty impressive numbers. And maybe more importantly, we think Wall Street analysts are even still now at this point, at this juncture, underestimating. We'll, we'll get a good sense in the second quarter here with earnings but we think they're underestimating earnings levels for this year, never mind earnings growth rates. Uh, and so, you know, people complain about the market being overvalued. We think what's happened is investors have paid up for stocks. They're going to see the earnings growth come in. That's going to bring those multiples back down. That's going to bring a new wave of, of investors into the market uh, and in just in time for earnings to rise again next year. So we are positioned for stock gains through 2022. So on that, it's an earning story. Sorry, uh, I mean it. Make, it makes sense to me. Uh, and when you think about it um, from the earnings perspective, are you seeing disparate um, pockets of growth opportunities there? Is this more broad? Is it very thematic from what we saw last year, the the stay at home economy versus the recovering economy, or where are you seeing those earnings gains uh, being driven by? Yeah, so cyclicals and small caps have outperformed mostly, especially over the last 12 months, maybe not so much in recent months, but that's just the market being cautious about the, the, the flattening in the yield curve. But we think to your question, the point of your question, uh, the small caps and cyclicals will continue to be the main drivers of earnings here. And that's why we're positioned really, it, it, it's not an environment that you're gonna see very often. You haven't seen it for the last 20, 30 years where value really outperforms, small caps really outperform for a sustained period, at least 12 months. But we think that's what you're going to get uh, starting the fall into the end of this year and through next year. Cyclicals will be the place to be. And it's an, again, it's an earnings story. Okay. So on, on that front too, as, as you think about kind of the inflation being above average or at least above trend, growth above trend, um, that does augur very well for the cyclical recovery, augurs very well for the value story as well. Um, but what do you take of this move in the rates market over the last quarter or so? Um, as you've seen kind of the flattening of the curve, we've seen inflation prints higher. Uh, there's been this idea that, you know, uh, the curve is flattening, the, the rates move is over. How are you thinking about bond markets? Because you did say that you prefer equities to the, to the fixed income environment. How are you thinking about that? And how are you thinking about the role of fixed income within a portfolio, given that view? Yeah, it's a great question. So the 10-year treasury seems to have found at least a temporary home, maybe a and b a kind of a home uh, in, the, in the 130 to 140 range. We think that's too low. We think what's happened in the last several months is that the, the bond market has is discounted by turns. First, a, a lower peak in growth than previously expected. We're not bothered by that. Uh, we think that will be the case, but you're going to still have good growth through next year, as we mentioned. The second thing that the bond market has had to, to digest was the Fed's uh, decision. In, in, uh, it's really more of a language change 
back in June at the June meeting to say that, look, you know, maybe we need to bring taper here to the table soon. Uh, maybe we need to bring rate uh, hikes forward from 2024 into 23 or perhaps even 22. And as soon as the market sees that, it's thinking, well, growth's going to be a little bit slower. So that's going to lower the long end. And also inflation is probably on the Fed's radar now. So inflation expectations really don't need to keep moving up. And indeed, if you look at those market-based inflation measures like the Fed five-year, five-year, or inflation swaps, those are all heading, heading lower now. So that's probably what's flattening the curve here. You've got the short end moving up a little bit as people price in Fed rate hikes earlier into the future than, than previously. Uh, and you've got the long end coming down as growth slows a little bit. Uh, and as inflation expectations get taken back down again. So, uh, you know, that's not going to help things like financials, which are uh, an obvious cyclical right now. But we think rates will move back up again uh, just because probably the Fed's Im Im impact is being overestimated. The, the, the timing of the Fed moves are probably being brought too far forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And when I look at the dot plots, and there was a lot made about it, the median dot increased at the last uh, meeting for the Fed hike in 23. But I point out to everyone, look at the dispersion around yeah. uh, around the estimates that no one really knows, right? And so the median moved up, but the standard deviation around it or the, or the just dispersion across the opinions uh, uh, really increased significantly. And so to me, that's the discussion that should be uh, had at the Fed is that we don't know. So look, we're open to different ideas. We're open to being able to hike, but there's nothing set in stone. Uh, you mentioned taper, and a lot is made out of the taper. I mean, the Fed's been plowing away at $120 billion a month in between treasuries and agency mortgages. What, what do you think about kind of their reduction plans within the taper? What, what does that look like? When does it start? And does it really matter? I, I know a lot is made about the tapering because we had the taper tantrum in 13, uh, where it was less telegraphed, where uh, Chairman Bernanke just kind of came out and said it. Oh, we're thinking about reducing purchase, and bam! All of a sudden, you know, markets yeah. got got a got a wrench thrown into them. But this one is much more telegraphed. Uh, how do you think about it? What do you think that path looks like uh, when the Fed starts to really reduce purchase? Remember, it's not the unwind; it's just reducing how much they're actually. Uh, yeah, that's a really good, really good point. And, and it's and it's not just that that they're going to continue, and the growth rate is still going to be positive, but right. the levels are still huge. Uh, you got the Fed balance sheet at eight trillion dollars, probably on its way to nine trillion dollars. Uh, that's uh, several orders of magnitude above where it was even 10, 12 years ago, uh, uh, 15 years ago. So, yeah, the Fed's going to keep buying, and that's probably what's going to help the economy to grow a little faster than it would have otherwise. Because remember, federal stimulus is going away. Next year is going to be a fiscal drag. But if you have Fed money sitting out there, uh, uh, purchases of MBSs and, and treasuries, that's going to help money go into the stock market. Uh, it's going to help money come out of the bond market. So, yeah, rates should continue to go a little bit higher in the long end, uh, not because they're driven so much by inflation, but because the economy is going to hold up here better than it would have if there weren't so much Fed, Fed buying. So taper, yeah, highly telegraphed, as you mentioned, but, uh, but still positive and continuing for a lot longer than the markets would have expected, let's say going back to 13 and 14, right? It would have been seen as binary, either the Fed's buying or they're not. Today, it's they're buying less, but they're still buying. Well, I guess one other way of thinking as a positive attribute is the fiscal side of the equation that 
they stop throwing around two trillion and three trillion dollar numbers in every single package that that's being presented out there as well. And so there's been a little bit more concession there. It doesn't look like you know fiscal spending is going to be 25 percent of GDP anymore, uh, albeit still at elevated levels. And so um, when you think about where kind of fair value ish is on on the 10 year and the long bond, what, what are you thinking about this by year end, given your forecast for growth and inflation outlook? Well, we're still looking for a 10-year around two uh, by the end of the year, so a, a considerable move higher from here. But but keep in mind, too, that this move down to 136 is, that this is probably an overshoot to the downside. Uh, the markets are underestimating what the Fed is still capable of doing, even if it starts to taper. So uh, a fairly significant move in the 10-year here, uh, a significant move in the 30-year. And you, look, you just don't want to be standing in front of that steamroller when it comes at you if, if you're a bond investor. Having said that, we want to be defensive, not liquidating, right? The difference is that we're going to go to shorter maturities, maybe middle part of the curve, uh, and we're going to go where we can get some reasonable yield. We're going to look for munis to help protect high net worth clients against high income taxpayers against tax hikes. We still like preferreds here as well. So, uh, you know, shorten up the durations, uh, go to the middle part of the curve, uh, do municipals, do preferreds. Uh, we think that's a way to keep some fixed income in your portfolio. And there's still going to be some equity volatility. You're going to want to have that balanced. Yeah. So um, that that begs the question, too. I, I didn't hear corporate bonds in there. Um, you know, so do you prefer to take kind of that exposure to the equity market or um, why 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 no corporate bonds at this level? Oh, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean to suggest that the uh, corporate bonds, definitely. But but watching duration there as well as on the Treasury side. Uh, we, we like the carry that you get from corporates. We would go just uh, shorter maturities. Okay, fair enough. Sorry, didn't mean to put words in your mouth there. Too. Uh, no, no, I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> okay, um, so let's think about the other component that people don't speak too much about when it comes to the Fed, and that's the other part of their mandate to maximize employment. And so we've seen an improvement uh, through the U3 levels. The U3 levels have come down. You know, we're sub 6% now. We've seen labor participation pick up a little bit. Um, one thing that we've heard from the Fed that's been different in the cycle is talk about, you know, kind of the cohorts within the labor market, whether that's, you know, the representation of women who have been, uh, haven't been as quick to come back to the labor force, uh, the disproportionate effect of minorities, and, and those have been challenged in those areas. Uh, do you think that the Fed will start, if, if the inflation narrative kind of plays out, that you'll hear more and more of this. And, and, and as you think about it, this broad labor participation, um, it's going to take many more years than it is to hit an inflation target. So how do you kind of think about those dual go goalposts of the Fed? Yeah, the, the Fed is signaling that it's paying attention to inflation. It doesn't want the bond market to, to go crazy on the upside with yields. But the Fed really does also worry about uh, employment. And increasingly, they'll tell you in, in statements, if you read them, that they're worried about income inequality as well. Uh, so this is the Fed taking uh, taking employment, full employment to maybe a different level. And the, and the cohorts that you mentioned, so for example, women, uh, minorities, uh, uh, retirees, people retiring, let's say that 55 and over group, maybe retiring earlier than they would have otherwise because of COVID. Uh, all of this plays into sort of the what I would call the post-COVID narrative that, look, things were bad during COVID. Maybe I want to rethink my life a little bit. Uh, and so you're, you're seeing people stay out of the workforce or retiring early. But then you've got also people who have who've had their kids at home 
uh, for, for a year and a half now, and that's summertime. So kids are still home. You might like to be working from home while your kids are there. But come the fall, most schools are going back. and They're going back full time. And come the fall, those federal extended extra unemployment benefits are going away. Uh, and come the fall, you're probably going to see the end of the rent moratorium in a lot of places. So people are going to need that income. Uh, and with wages having risen now, uh, you're going to see people coming back to work. There's still going to be a pretty high quit rate. There's still going to be a lot of people changing jobs. But for the, the labor force participation rate to be two percentage points, that's several million people below where it was pre-pandemic. That's not all early retirement. That's a lot of people who are just holding back. We think they will come back into the labor force. Yeah, we've seen something like 8 million jobs are still, there's 8, 8 million fewer jobs than there were prior to the pandemic. Um, but uh, Sam likes to point out on his podcast he does with uh, Jeff Mayberry that, you know, a lot of these openings that we've seen, the surpluses tend to be concentrated in these lower wage areas. Things that were like, you know, leisure related or hospitality, restaurants, mm -hmm. service sectors. And so do you think it requires wage pressure there? to continue to, to really fill those openings? Or is it uh, part of the, the story you told earlier where it's people saying, hey, I, I wanna change my life, something's different than it was 18 months ago? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. I, I don't know the percentages. It, it's hard to tell what the relative importance of wages is versus COVID. But think about some of those low wage places, especially in red states, a lot of those folks aren't vaccinated. Uh, and they're wearing masks, but you're, you're asking them to come back. Employers would be asking them to come back and work in close proximity with one another, and they're still afraid. Uh, so, you know, with the vaccination rate lower in some places than it is in others, that's preponderant, preponderantly going to affect those low-wage workers by more. And, and I think it's just going to take some time for that to wear off or for them to get vaccinated or for them to get sick in some combination before we start to see the, those, those folks get comfortable coming back into the workforce. Yeah, well, we've noticed, too, in some of our hiring and, and job requisitions out there, and this is more kind of on the IT side of the equation, too, is that it's not just wages, it's lifestyle, right? That, huh. that people are, are demanding a different environment. And so um, what, how do you think about that when thinking about the composition of a benefits package? Like, what do employers need to do to entice people back? Obviously, a restaurant can't have everybody working from home, right? Uh, it's going to be hard to get your food to you. Uh, if so, uh, they're, they're going to be replaced by that robot. But how are you thinking about that dynamic and what can employers do to really incentivize employees um, in terms of perquisites? Yeah, we're seeing things like, uh, uh, like businesses offer uh, flexible time, flexible hours to deal with childcare, uh, to deal with sick children, to deal with children that are home from school. Uh, we're seeing employers provide extra benefits, uh, funded benefits for things like education uh, and health uh, issues uh, that might not have been covered before. Uh, employers will go to the well to find other ways to increase the flexibility and the attractiveness of coming back to work, whether it's in a, in a restaurant or, or in, a, in an IT shop, as you mentioned. And, and of course, if, if it's possible to work from home, uh, that's going to be a very strong draw for people uh, to either quit jobs that, that don't have that or to stay in jobs that, that can suddenly uh, offer it, even if it's just hybrid. But, but, but there are a lot of folks who just want to work from home permanently. So 
yeah, I think there's there's things that employers can do. Uh, there's a limit to what employers will do, but there but we'll have to explore some of those some more. Well, it sounds like labor is gaining the upper hand on capital for at least one part of this cycle. Although that may be transitory as well, we'll have to see how that plays out. But as as you think about that, what are the implications here for like productivity, right? Because we've seen that in the last, uh, you know, in the last cycle, and I'll call this the post GFC world, we saw this uh, this degradation in productivity. It seems like we've increased productivity, you know, just given the the fewer workers out there and, and where GDP is today. Um, is this something where this work remote environment is more productive? Do we have an excess of labor out there doing kind of non-productive work? Or have we solved that conundrum? Because economists have been scratching their head for a decade on, a decade on where's the productivity growth. Yeah, we still have a skills mis- mismatch in, in terms of the, the sorts of jobs that, uh, that are out there uh, that can't be filled because people, people aren't able to do them, especially the, the high tech uh, sorts of things. But, but two points on productivity. First of all, it's not unusual early in a cycle to see productivity increase. And that's happening with a vengeance this time for two reasons. One is that uh, simply sales are off the charts. Uh, companies are being are committing themselves to sales that they may not necessarily be able to satisfy or to meet yet. So they need to do something to get those sales met and out the door. And the second thing that's happening is that labor is in a shortage, as we've just been talking about. So if you're a company and you're selling more than you can deliver, and you don't have the workers there, you've got to do something to increase productivity. And it's increased dramatically. We think that's actually going to help control inflation uh, going forward because it's going to break this link between wages go up and prices have to go up. Instead, what you're going to see is productivity goes up, sales can continue to go up, earnings are generated, but you don't necessarily need to charge higher prices. So it's going to keep us from that 70 cycle of wages and prices, but it's it's probably going to resolve itself. Productivity growth that is cyclically is going to come down, what, as sales slow and as more people come into the labor market to, to fill those jobs, you're just going to see productivity come down a little bit. So, so a temporary phenomenon, yes, productivity much higher. But a longer term issue is what happens with, with those firms that have to commit to higher wages. They make a level jump, let's say, from $20 to $30 an hour. They may not need to take wages much higher, as we just discussed. But that level of $30 an hour is still higher than what they paid in the past. What that's going to mean is more use of artificial intelligence, more use of technology in the workplace. And that's why we think technology is a good bet for investors long term. We're neutral right now on the sector. That means we're at strategic levels, but we're only at neutral because cyclicals are just so strong right now. We need to give them some extra cash. But look out in the longer term, tech and artificial intelligence will be uh, still good growth prospects for investors in the years to come, the longer term. Okay. No, I, I like I like that perspective there. So on that front, let's talk about one thing that changed in the pandemic. And I think some of it, trade, it, it changed in the last couple of years of the previous administration, where we had this, you know, kind of negative uh, overhang of globalization, right? So the idea of nationalization versus globalization. And um, you know, with the, the tariffs and the trade wars that were started uh, in in twenty, I think it was early twenty eighteen. Um, what where do you think the pandemic has played in that? Do you think that has accelerated that trend of nationalization, or at least we seem to be rotating that direction where there's less globalization? And how do you think about implications for this? Uh, you know, less integration on a global perspective, and 
redefinition of supply chains. There's a lot in that question. So feel free to jump jump in anywhere there. I'm glad you asked that question. I'm, I'm writing on that right now for a report that we're going to publish in September. And we think globalization is not reversible. It's just morphing. Um, if you think about the pandemic, what it, what it really did was bring home to people that, hey, if you're depending on another country to provide you XYZ products, and that country can't because they're not working on account of a pandemic or an epidemic, then you need to have some domestic supply to, to satisfy your demand uh, if that country goes missing in action for a while. So yes, it definitely does. The pandemic definitely does strengthen those nationalist and populist tendencies that were already on the move before the pandemic hit. But at the same time, what's really, what's really the opportunity, and especially for investors in globalization today, is the trade in services and the trade in what you might think of as intangibles. By intangibles, I mean things like brand names. You know, you get a brand name from this country, you take it over to Asia, it's going to have a lot of cash shade to it because people know that brand name. That's an intangible. It's not a, it's not a widget. Likewise, code. If you have, a, let's say, a, a computer program that delivers some output to someone, maybe it's a, a social media website, and you can transfer code from one location, one country to another, then you've generated new output that's, that's chargeable, that generates revenue, but at almost nil marginal cost. So the transmission of information and the transmission of services, even if you include logistics in there, that's also going to be important going forward. Companies are going to want to be able to maintain better handles on where's weather bad, where are their uh, transport problems, where are their labor problems, so that they can switch from one supplier to another. IT is going to be very important. So the whole role of IT, artificial intelligence, intangibles, embedded services, services that are part of a package that goes with a good when you buy it. Let's say you buy a car and it comes with, it comes with service that you're going to be able to call and get help with. That's embedded service. All of these are developing ideas that we think investors will be able to take advantage of on the services side, on the intangible side. It's, again, highly tied up with tech. And, and artificial intelligence, we think that's the real future of globalization, not so much trading goods, which are likely to be more and more nationalized or going down to regional hubs instead of relying on China for everything. Yeah, that gives, that gives me two questions then on there too, because there seems to be this mantra about um, having these kind of more industrial-based jobs here in the U.S., which is a smaller part of the labor force. Um, you know, think of manufacturing the likes and we still manufacture stuff in this country people like to say we don't manufacture anything but we definitely still do we do yeah, yeah we definitely do and, and industrials have been a great place to invest people tend to overlook them for that kind of narrative but you know you, you mentioned the coding aspect and you know this fungibility of of just being able to transport code um where are you guys landing on the whole cryptocurrency concept so we think cryptocurrencies are, represent a market that has done quite a lot of maturing over the last 10 or 11 years. You can see that in terms of the number of cryptocurrencies that are out there now. Uh, the share that, that's gone to the, the dominant cryptocurrency has fallen, or, or cryptocurrencies have fallen over time. You're starting to see more people buy different cryptocurrencies at different points in time. And it's very interesting to see a couple of other things. One is that regulators and banks have started making allowances to create a regulatory framework 
and a storage framework for cryptocurrencies. Do you think that's going to develop in the future too and make it safer for investors to hold cryptocurrencies as an investment? And then of course, the, the, the real gem in the crown is that cryptocurrencies aren't going to move with, with traditional assets over a long period of time. They will over shorter periods, but over longer periods of time, because they're going to develop with the digital economy. They're not going to develop with the, uh, uh, with the, with the tangible economy, the economy of widgets and production. Uh, and that's going to allow them to develop in a way that's going to outpace the overall economy that's still very heavily widget oriented and in industrial oriented. Uh, and so holding a cryptocurrency could become an interesting way to diversify a portfolio beyond just the, the prospect for, for higher returns. And we do see volatility coming down. Now, volatility was 160% by some by measures of some indices five years ago. Today, it's more like 80%. So still pretty high compared to the S&P at 16, but coming down, we think that continues to develop. So you know, it's probably appropriate for what we call qualified investors. Investors with at least $2 million and, and who uh, are going to hold it as a managed product. In other words, somebody else has the digital wallet for you uh, and manages the exposure for you. Uh, so we think on a limited basis for now in that qualified managed way, we think it's, it could be appropriate for some investors. Well, thanks for a great conversation here, uh, Paul. Uh, I, I kind of want to bring it back full circle. You know, we've talked about macro. We've talked about markets. And I want to think about uh, how to put it all together and, you know, really think about how or, you know, get your thoughts about how investors should be thinking about their portfolios, how they should be positioned, you know, what are some of the risks, what are some of the opportunities that you're seeing. And, you know, perhaps one of the areas that uh, many investors uh, lack in their portfolios has been commodities over time, but they've been kind of kicking their themselves, you know, just saying that, you know, we missed the run up in commodities around some of this bump in inflation that we got. And one of the questions that we receive often is, you know, have we missed the trade in commodities? They've run up so much, you know, given our outlook on inflation, you know, what do we think about um, inflation as, or I mean, commodities as an inflation hedge, uh, a way to, to participate in the global uh, economic recovery, um, things like that. I mean, what, what are you thinking about when it comes to portfolios? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to think about commodities exclusively as an inflation hedge. And, and maybe they've lost some of that if inflation is just going to steady here, uh, it's going to come down and steady between two and two and a half percent. We think commodities have quite a bit up more upside than is indicated by inflation by itself. In other words, we've we've restored commodities. Uh, you know, we think commodities could be in a very interesting play. We've restored them as a tactical favorite of ours uh, since last year, uh, mainly because we see that the supply issues have largely been addressed in, in the market. It takes if you go back to 1800, you'll see that commodities will tend to overshoot mainly because producers just can't stop producing the stuff. They've got too much uh, capital invested. They got to keep keep growing those crops or pulling stuff, pulling dirt out of the ground to dig for whatever mineral they're looking for. This time, we think that supply adjustment has largely been made, uh, and what we're what we're seeing now is some upside to commodities. The green revolution, renewable energy is also going to help out there. It's going to increase the demand for lithium and other battery sorts of minerals. And plus anything that's conductible, anything that conducts electricity uh, should benefit as we move more towards green energy in the US, Europe, uh, and Japan. So commodities look like an interesting tactical play to us right now. 
Yeah, we definitely agree with that side too. So, um, Paul, this is one of these conversations that it's not very contentious here today. So um, let's, <laughs> let's pull it all together, though. Let's, let's think about it. So you're advising clients. You're thinking about ways to you know, help people in their allocation. So what are some of the risks you see out there that no one's really talking about or it's not on enough investors' mind today? And how are you thinking about trying to address that and try to deal with try to insulate against some of that risk in the portfolio today? So there's a couple of risks that come to mind right away. One is the one I mentioned earlier, that, that in, investors who need income are, are once again, as they did in the last decade, stretching for yield. We would not be doing that at this point. We think yields will rise by enough between now and year end, like up to two on the, ten, on the tenure, that you will lose money in your portfolio in, if you keep adding the long duration, the long maturity bonds. So stick to the middle of the curve, stick to municipals, stick to those corporates in the middle of the curve, and stick to preferreds. The other risk that, that people really fail to appreciate, and maybe others over-exaggerate, over is the bubble risk. Uh, they see equity evaluations really high right now. They hear people like me say, earnings are going to pull those valuations back down again. So buy based on earnings-driven equity price growth. And so they think they should buy everything. But here's the risk that's embedded in that. And that is that you've got a lot of things at the margin of the market. Uh, this, this, whole, uh, this whole trade where you look for stocks that have been shorted by the market and you suddenly start buying them to cause, <laughs> to cause the short covering. Uh, and, and you take advantage of a real short-term sort of gain in the price, but there's no real fundamental basis for buying those stocks because there's a reason they were being shorted in the first place. So on the edges of the market, you will see some froth. You will see some bubble-like action. And so we would avoid doing things like chasing shorts. Uh, we would avoid doing things like chasing tech companies that don't have any earnings yet. Uh, we would stay with the companies that really have the good reputation that have generated earnings because chasing those few companies is going to turn you into a 1999 investor all over again. That's what the problem was, that those companies had no earnings yet. But today, Tech has a lot of earnings. There's a lot of opportunities there. So don't go fishing on the edges of the market looking for cheap stocks that could be cheap for a reason. Yeah. Now, our, uh, our sector rotation strategy is, has been signaling to buy tech for a long period of time. And uh, I know a lot of uh, prospects and investors scratch their head and we're trying to show them the earnings and, and how the dynamics have changed. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think you may have answered this, but um, I, I like to bring this up to people because people like to let winners run and, and the like. So what do you think people own too much of today in a portfolio? And what would you advise them of what they potentially own too little of? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> they're, they're, people talk about the, the, the market leaders, the, the, the really huge stocks, the ones with, with uh, you know, multiple billions of, uh, of market capitalization. Uh, and we think you know, there's a tendency, especially in older investors, to want to invest in what they know. So they invest in products they know, uh, they invest in those companies, and those companies have gotten bigger and bigger. They've run up with the market here. You know, if you want to take tech exposure, everything that I've said here today is, is really about looking ahead and seeing strong growth for tech. But if you, if you narrow your focus to just a couple of companies that are at the top, the names uh, everyone knows. Uh, those could be really expensive, and, and you might find a, take, that it takes a long time to, to earn your money back uh, in, in those kinds of companies before you get back on a reasonable valuation. So take a diversified approach uh, to these sectors. 
especially ones that have good futures like tech and communication services and consumer discretionary. Uh, take a broadly based approach, not going to the edges of the market, not to, not to go to the real cheap companies that, that nobody knows anything about, but there's a wide, widening group in the middle there uh, that are probably under-owned. Okay. All right. Well, I think that that's a, that is a great overview today, Paul. We really appreciate the time. Uh, those of you that watch on the YouTube channel, it's great to see Paul's uh, Wells Fargo pen on there too, uh, representing <laughs> the company. Uh, Sam and I tried to bring double line here, but you can't really see a lot of times it's on the shoulders and sleeves. So, uh, we got to work on our product placement, our labeling. There you go. But, yeah, there we go. There we go. Sam uh, gets a chance. He gets a chance to flex too. Shows his work from home to see. Um, so, uh, we really appreciate the time, but before you leave, Paul, there's one last segment of the show that's Sam's favorite part that we must do. So, Sam, kick it off. All right, Paul, and that part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Mr. Sherman, uh, to which I hope to elicit a top of mind yet concise uh, response here. You know, okay. we used to, as I was telling you earlier, we used to ask for one word responses, but we never got them or rarely got them. Uh, and then when we did succeed, it became too much, too big of a deal. And that you know, spurred a lot of banter after that as well. So I'm going to kick it off here first with uh, Mr. Sherman with the prompt of business travel. So uh, business travel comes back, but not to the degree that it used to be. <laughs> All right. And then uh, over to Mr. Sherman, uh, Chinese reserve requirement cut. Uh, so uh, just an adjustment, a tweak, nothing, not a game changer. All right. Um, for the next one, I'm going to start uh, alternating these between you and Jeff. Uh, so Jeff will take the next one and then I'll give you the, the following one. So I'm okay. going to back to Jeff with, uh, let's see here, peak U.S. GDP growth. Second quarter. All right. And back to you, Paul, with, uh, let's go with decentralized finance, a.k.a. DeFi. Uh, something for the future, not for today. All right. And back to Sherman with savings delight. Working itself down. Have you seen people out? You know, <laughs> so the savings glut is working itself off and it's going and America deserves it. Everybody worked hard to get through this. So uh, go have a little fun, but be safe. All right. Back to you, Paul, with uh, capital gains tax. Capital gains tax, 28%, not a full income tax rate. Sherman, uh, let's go with tourism. Uh it's burgeoning. And what I'm thinking about is global. And I'm thinking about all those Europeans that are looking to go south right now. So, um, you know, going, going to celebrate uh, down in Italy with them winning the, uh, the, the European championship. All right. And I'm going to put out a final one for each of you. Uh, again, two different prompts. First one for you, Paul, with ransomware. Uh, ransomware increasingly a risk and will be addressed. All right. And then the last one for you here, Sherman, is global minimum corporate tax. Difficult to enforce, um, something that the high tax nations love uh, for competition, but I think it's overstated. It's going to be challenging to enforce. If I could jump in there, I'll say just one acronym, D-O-A. It's never going to happen. <laughs>
And then you didn't, that was an O, not an E in there, right? So <laughs> D-O-A, that's, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, that that's a great way to end it. Paul, thank you for the time. I know you're on a tight I'll schedule you. today. We really jammed through this. We pushed a lot through great content. Uh, keep up the great work and what you guys put out at the Wells Fargo Institute. Um, for our listeners out there, where can they follow your work and what's the best way to get access? Uh, so uh, our website, wellsfargo.com. Uh, or talk to one of our financial advisors through wellsfargoadvisors.com. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Paul, for joining us today. That's been a, another episode of The Sherman Show. You can catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, a bunch of other things I can't think of at the time. Uh, also, don't forget to tune in to Sam and Jeff Mayberry, where each week they go through uh, what's happening on the macro front and markets on the Monday Morning Minutes. It's released. Uh, before the bell every Monday morning. And also don't forget to subscribe to our Channel 11 news feed where portfolio manager Ken Shinoda is out there interviewing many market guests and giving us insight on what's going on across the various markets on a monthly basis. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new guest. But once again, this is Paul Christopher. Uh, he's the head of global market strategy for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. So thanks again, Paul. Thanks, guys. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.